All right, good morning, New Life East. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning, and we're going to recite the creed together. If you're new to New Life East, the reason that we do this every Sunday, we recite the Nicene Creed, is not to sort of indoctrinate you into the things that we believe, but it's to invite us as a congregation to recite what has been true about Christianity for thousands of years. These are the statements that people throughout time have agreed on when we think about Christianity, what are the, Christianity, what are the most important vital things for our faith? So New Life East, would you say this with me? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And if you believe that, we can all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you this morning, New Live East. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, it's a joy to have you with us this morning. There's a lot of energy in the 11 o'clock house this morning. I have a feeling that some of you 9 o'clockers showed up for 11 here. And uh, daylight savings, why do we have this? What is it about? I just do not get it. But it's good to see you all. Uh, we're in a series called Who is God? A look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whom we just confessed in the creed and the Christian imagination. Uh, one God in three persons is how we talk about God. And so the Father is fully God, and the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. And each of them, we see that God reveals himself throughout the course of Scripture as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the church didn't kind of come along and go, we've got some clever ideas. What if we do this? But it was as the church read the Bible, it saw that these, de- uh, these divine characters were doing things in the text of Scripture. And so Trinity is the name that we give to talk about the divine character in Scripture. And so these first eight weeks of the series, we've been looking at who God is as Father, really walking through the Old Testament and trying to look at how the Old Testament reveals the fatherhood of God. And so we looked at creation, who God is for us in creation. We looked at the fall, how he pursues us even when we wander away from him. We looked at covenant. Last week, Pastor Colin talked about wisdom, how God the Father teaches us the right way to live and shows us what kinds of decisions we can make. And then this week, I want to conclude our time talking about God the Father. As we start angling towards Easter, we're going to shift into talking about Jesus the Lord, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But as we close up this section talking about God the Father, I want to look at who God the Father is for us in the prophets. If you've read through the Old Testament, 
You know, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, kind of set the story. We have the rise of the kingdom after that. There's a whole bunch of wisdom literature. And then at the end of the Old Testament, there are these books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, where God reveals himself in these books in a way that I think uh, might have been hard for us to see had we not had these specific prophetic oracles. And so I want to take a look at the prophets this morning for a few minutes and then put one thing in front of you that I want to invite you into before we open the scriptures together. Let's pray. Oh, we relax into you. Oh God, we relax into you. We thank you that that which the creed declares, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're looking for the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. We just thank you that we're bathed in mysteries that are above us and beyond us, and yet they shelter and they guard our lives. I love the psalmist who said, my heart is not proud. Oh God, my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've calmed and I've quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. We pray that this morning as we peer into the mysteries that you would reveal enough to us to help us rest into the might of God. Come, we pray. We ask, Lord God, that you would have your way in our midst. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would deconstruct in us, tear away in us all that stands against the advent of the life of God in us. Come, we're saying. We pray that you would hallow your name in our midst. We pray that your kingdom would come, Father, that your will would be done in us just like it's done in heaven. Grant it, we pray. We ask that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, I'm going to start in the book of Isaiah, and I want to just take three big chunks of prophetic text and set them in front of you. And I don't want you to analyze these so much this morning, as I want you to feel the weight of them, the energy of them coming from the very heart of Almighty God. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 10, listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were two of the most notoriously... Uh, evil cities in all of the Old Testament recollection. And so for the prophet Isaiah, speaking in the voice of God, to, for him to call the people of God Sodom and Gomorrah, is really saying something about the state that they were in. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. God, no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to appear before me in worship, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my court. Stop bringing your meaningless offerings, your incense. It's detestable to me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths and your convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Think about that. God's saying, I can't, your worship. Ah, I can't stand it. Get it out of my sight. The Lord says, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. And even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. But your hands are full of blood. You see, there was a breakdown between the people of God, what they worshipped of God and how they were living. And so God speaks right into that breakdown 
with all of his angst and all of his anger, anger and all of his agony, he says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. To take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, he says, let us settle the matter together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And if you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, that's a stiff drink of apple cider vinegar. You know, whoa. What was that? But that's what the prophetic literature does. It reveals a God who is not passive and he's not detached and he's not remote. But all of the things that are going on in the life of the people of God, particularly those things that are going on that should not be going on, it elicits this really strong response from God. Look at what the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? Like, was, was there something wrong with me? Is that why you left me? Is that why you ditched me? Is that why you walked away? Well, they followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. And they didn't ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through that barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its rich and fertile produce. But you came and you defiled my land and you made my inheritance detestable. The priest didn't even ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law didn't know me, but their leaders rebelled against me. Their prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Like, think about what God's saying. Like, I brought you into this place and I gave you everything that was good, everything that you could need to have a life. And all of a sudden, everybody just kind of like got disinterested in God. The people didn't wonder, where is the Lord? And even the priests, the people who are the guardians of the sacred things, the priests weren't even wondering, where is God? Like, God got up and left the building and everybody just carried on like everything was normal. And like, they said, What? What is going on with you guys? And listen to what the Lord says in verse 13. My people, he says, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Like two sins. You stop drinking of the well. Like that's all I am for you. I am your life. I'm your center. I'm your substance. I'm, I'm your being. And so not only did you walk away from me, but then you dug for yourself these cisterns, these broken cisterns that can't hold water. And you keep trying to put the water of life in them and it get, just keeps leaking. I'm like, what is the matter with you, my people? Do you hear the passion, the energy of God towards his people? Listen to what the Lord says in the book of Hosea. And this breaks my heart every time I read it. And this gets to the notion of God as father. The scripture says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That's how God refers to Israel. My son, my kids. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. But it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. You parents in the room, you remember when you were teaching your little kids to walk? Holding them by the hand, that's the imagery that's being used here. But I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms. They didn't even realize that I was the I who healed them. And I, I led them with cords of kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was one, like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. God remembering when he held his babies close by his face. And I bent down to feed them. And will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Like, don't you see what you're doing, you guys? But you're giving me the stiff arm. You're pushing away from me. And you're going to wind up 
right back among the nations that took advantage of you. Like, don't you remember Egypt, the Lord says? So a sword will flash in their cities and it will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people determined to turn from me. And even though they call on the Most High God, I will by no means exalt them. And yet, listen to what the Lord says in verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. Do you hear the passion of the Lord? You guys were little kids and you grew up in my house and I loved you and I gave you everything. And I taught you how to be and I fed you and I raised you up and now you're wandering away from me. Fine, if that's what you want, the Lord says. You go into those nations and you see what happens to you and I'm going to give you up. And then you feel the wrestle in God's own heart. He goes, wait, like just as soon as God is like, I'm about to hand you over. He goes, no, but I can't hand you over because you're mine and you belong to me and I'm committed to you. So if you're going back to Egypt and I'm going to Egypt and if you go to Assyria, I'm going to Assyria. My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Guys, the prophets reveal to us a God who is relentlessly committed to his people. He's relentlessly committed to his people. God is not detached and God is not remote and God is not indifferent to his people, but he's relentlessly committed to them. Even if it causes him all kinds of heartache and heartbreak and pain, he's committed to his people to the very end. We have this thing that we say in the church and we rightly say it, that God is love. God is love. But I think that when we say that, I think that we often don't know exactly what we mean when we say that. We have our ideas of love, our concepts of love, and then we throw them up into the heavens and we say, well, God is like that. So God for us becomes this kind of soft, billowy, somewhat indifferent substance floating around in the cosmos. And when we evoke the God of love, we evoke that. But the one thing that the scriptures reveal about the God of love is that God's love is not indifferent, but it has hard angles and sharp edges. God's love is not, it's not tasteless. God's love has a kind of tang to it, a sharpness to it, an acidity to it. It's got a bite to it, and that bite is aimed towards something. Thomas Aquinas said that to love is to will the good of the other and to will it completely. God is committed to our good, and maybe not the good that we think is the good, but he's committed to the best things for us. He's committed to that because he's our divine parent. He loves us. And I think about my parents when I was a kid. I'm the oldest of four and blessed to have grown up in a house that had really committed parents. And my parents were zealots for what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And as the oldest, how many oldest kids do we have sitting in the house here this morning? It's tough work, man. You bear the brunt of it, you know. Your parents are determined that with this child, you know, the standard bearer, we will get it right with this kid. And so my parents, you know, they could, they were always on me about this, that, and the other thing. The lines were very clear in my house, you know, and I'd get to the edge of one of the lines and I'd feel the wrath, you know, it's like the day of mom and dad would flare up, you know, bringing me back to center. Or I can even remember as a kid, I can remember there were times that I would like flash the, long, the wrong look at my parents, you know, and like the whiff of an attitude was enough to draw discipline from them. And I had these moments as a kid where I just remember thinking like they were just, and like nothing escaped their notice, you know, it's like every little attitude and every little thing, they were on it and they were correcting it and disciplining it. And I can remember being so frustrated by that at times, like just leave me alone. 
get off my back, you know, and they never did. I got four kids of my own and I see where my parents are coming from. I'm watching their behavior and who they are and the decisions that they're making and all of that. And the day of Andrew, you know, that like that, that flares up for my kids often. And I will have my kids, they will actually say to me at times, you know, when I'm being a little overbearing or whatever, but I care for their good. To love is to will the good of the other and to will it completely. And I'll say to my kids, you know, like I'll wrap them up and I'm trying to correct them or whatever. And I'll have them say to me, like they'll throw elbows at me, you know. Dad, just leave me alone is what they'll say. And they'll come to see that leaving your kids alone is the one thing that parent love can never do. And even when you think I'm leaving you alone, I'm not actually really leaving you alone. Even those times where it's like, all right, all right, I'll get off your back. You know what I'm doing? I'm interceding like mad for you. Because I got a connection to you. That's what covenant love is. It's a connection that cannot be broken by your rebellion and your waywardness and your sin. It's passionate. And so when we say God is love, we need something like that. That God's love has hard angles and sharp edges. And it has a kind of tang, a savor to it. It's got an acidity to it. And it's meant to heal us. Elie Wiesel, the great Holocaust survivor, said many years ago that the opposite of love, he said, is not hate. But the opposite of love is indifference. The one thing that God can never be with us is indifferent. And sometimes when we evoke God's love, we're evoking that sort of billowy, white, semi-indifferent substance, and God is not that. So in the history of Christianity, one of the guys that I think got this the best was C.S. Lewis. And in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, he writes this. I want you to listen to this quote. Lewis says that when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, Lewis says, and you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, now he is present. And he is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. He's not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for his dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I don't know. It passes reason to explain why any creature is not to say creatures such as we should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also except in rare moments of grace beyond our desiring. Do you understand that about our God? That what he wants for you is better than what you want for yourself. And so when we welcome the living God in our lives and we say, do your best for us, God, we better buckle up. Because God is always doing his best for us. Lewis continues by saying that to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us even more lovable. Do you understand that? God, the beautiful one, is opposed to what's ugly in his creation, what is not right in his creation. And so his love labors with us to make us holy. So the scripture says in the Old Testament, God calls his people up out of Egypt. He says, be holy as, as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. Like that's, 
that's what you're in for. And I'm wondering this morning if we're ready for a God like that. I don't think that Israel was. God called his people up out of Egypt. When they came up out of Egypt, they really were just trying to get out of a jam. But you think about their hundreds of years in slavery, Pharaoh just grinding their lives to powder and tearing it to pieces. And what do they do? They're in pain. So they call upon God. God, help us. You're the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But don't you see the things that are happening to us and our lives are miserable and they, we're in pain and sorrow and difficulty. Can you help us, O oh God? That's what God does. As the psalmist says, I called and you answered me, right? He came to their rescue. He pulls them up out of Egypt. And there they are by the Red Sea and they're singing the song of Moses, right? I will sing to the Lord. He's lofty and uplifted. The horse and the rider he has hurled in the sea. God was always my strength, but now he has become my savior too. They extol him by the Red Sea. And you get the feeling when you read the Old Testament that the people of God just wanted the story to be over at that point, right? Curtain falls, roll credits, and we all live happily ever after. We'll do our thing. God, you do your thing and everybody else do their own thing. And the story doesn't end there. What does God do with his people? He brings them to Sinai. It starts revealing himself as the consuming fire. And he gives them the 10 words and his laws and decrees. And he begins forming them. And you get the feeling that the people of God are like, listen, the deliverance out of Egypt was enough. It was good. We're good. Leave us alone. And God's like, now that I've got my hands on you, <laughs> I'm pulling you close to me and I'm going to make you in my image. I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the long history of Israel, God's commitment to his people, like where it lands is here in the prophets. As the people of God try to become everything but the people of God, God presses further and further into them. And that's what we see in the prophets. The explosion of his passion to try to make them holy as he is holy. Guys, I think that this is how most of us come to the Lord. That we've got things in our lives that are in pain and we're in trouble and they're not the way that they should be. So what do we do? We call upon divine help. God, my marriage is in trouble, please. God, my kids are wayward, please. God, I'm addicted, please help. God, I'm depressed and anxious and fearful, please come to my rescue. God, my relationships are warped and nothing is working. Please, God, I'm purposeless. Please help me. And he comes. And he's delighted to do that. But most of us, the way that we treat God is we treat him like ibuprofen. What we're hoping for is an encounter with the Lord that allows us to feel better so that then we can go on and live life the way that we want to live our lives. And when we sign up for God... <laughs> When we call upon God, when we welcome God into the situation, he does much more than just make the pain go away. Do you know what he does? He digs down deep to the very roots of the issue to break the power of the thing so as to make us holy as he is holy. And the people of God always struggle with it. We struggle with this. People of God said in Ezekiel chapter 20, the prophet says, you say, we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. Have you ever felt like that? I've been following Jesus most of my life and there have been so many times in my journey where I've been like, God, do you know that all of the difficulty I am in right now, all the difficult things that I'm experiencing, this is because I follow you. It would be easier to just be some pagan or just doing whatever I want, making a load of money and moving on with my life. We all feel this from time to time. And the people of God felt it. 
We want to be like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. And listen to what the Lord says. What you have in mind will never happen. <laughs> That'll make you laugh. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you. Like you're going to do your level best to get away from me. And the harder you try to get away from me, the more I run towards you. The more you give me the stiff arm, the more I sneak behind your defenses and I start crumbling those defenses. The more you determine to make a home for yourself in Assyria and Egypt and Babylon, all those places where they do serve wood and stone, what you'll find is that even when you go to those deep, dark places that you're going to run into me. Think about what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are. But if I make my bed in the, where? You, what? Try to get away from him. Try to get away from him. I'm going to make my bed in the depths of hell, is what the psalmist says. And God goes, hi. <laughs> Lewis again. From mere Christianity this time. We welcome God in our lives, I think, to fix certain things. And God has more for us than just the fixing of certain things. Listen to what Lewis says again. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised, but... Presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing there. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers, making courtyards. And you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. The command to be ye perfect, Lewis says, is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into the creatures who can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods and he is going to make good his words. And if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a god or a goddess. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Guys, God is always more than we bargained for. He's always more than we bargained for. We sign up to be on Team Jesus because we have something that hurts and we want it to go away. And what Jesus does when he moves into our lives as the son of the father is he begins deconstructing the whole stinking thing. Building, as Lewis says, a palace that God can reign in. Making us into sons and daughters of God in the son, Jesus Christ. Living images of the resurrected one himself. And as Lewis says, the process will be long and at times very painful, but that is what we are in for. He meant what he said. And as one who's been following Jesus all of my life, I can tell you that it is at times very painful. 
And it's not just the ways in which the burning coals of conviction fall upon us, although that is painful at times. And it's not just the ways in which we find ourselves confronted when we're in our sin by brothers and sisters in the faith who come to us and go, what are you doing over there? Oh, it falls upon us. That's painful. But you know, part of what is painful about following this God is that oftentimes what he does in order to lead you into his glory is he asks you to give up things that are valuable to you and they're not bad things. But he hits you in those places where your identity has started to build itself around things that the identity should not be built around. I remember back in 2016, Mandy and I had been at the church in Denver. We'd helped some friends plant a church there. Been there seven years and the church was in a good place, happy place, the place that we had dreamed of for all that time that we'd been there. And I remember sitting with the Lord. It was a summer morning, June of 2016. And I remember sitting in prayer one morning, just in the presence of God. I got my coffee in my hand and my Bible kind of in the other hand. And I was sitting in one of those super weird Ikea poang chairs. You ever been those? Like they don't rock quite right. So you got this like funny kind of bounce on them. Anyway, weird sidebar. And I'm sitting there in my chair and I'm enjoying the presence of God. I was basking in God's presence and drinking deep of the well, the spirit, and enjoying having Jesus with me. No agenda, nothing to do, you know, which I think is the best place of prayer to be in. And in that place, I was giving thanks. Lord, thank you for my family. And Lord Jesus, thank you for my kids and how they're doing. Thank you for this church and through many dangers, toils and snares. You know, we've been through a lot of stuff and here we are. Like we've been through fire and waters, the psalmist said, and you brought us to a place of abundance. And thank you for that. And I'm worshiping the Lord that morning. And I will never forget, as clear as a bell, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, go ahead, put it on the table. And I don't know if you've ever had like a moment like that, where it's like it wasn't an audible voice, but if it had been audible, it wouldn't have been any more clear than it was. And it shook me to my core. And I remember saying right back to the Lord, I have no idea what you're talking about. And right back, the voice came to me, a voice of God, yes, you do you know exactly what I'm talking about. I said, no, I don't. Yes, you do. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Yes, you do. And I remember sitting there in that place of gratitude for all that God was doing and gratitude particularly for what he was doing in our church. And I remember saying to the Lord, my pastorate here, God, like, are you wanting me to put that on the table? And the moment I said that, I don't know if you've ever had this in prayer where it's like you kind of sniffing around for what God is saying and trying to listen. What is God, what is God doing here? And then you kind of click into that, into it. And that familiar, like peace kind of washes over you and a peace washed over me. And I was so freaking mad about it Sorry for my language. What? We finally got it where we're supposed to get it. It's working. Things are fine. We're paying the bills. We have a staff. Things are good. And I like what I get to do here. Why, why would you, why? Would you ask me to put it on the table? It might be that God's plans for us are better than our plans for ourselves. And in the long process of the Lord peeling my fingers off of that work, do you know what got flushed out of me? All sorts of idolatries and fears, vanities, insecurities that I just never would have had a chance to deal with unless that thing had been taken away. What am I saying to you this morning? I'm saying that the call is to yield to the father of our spirits. And there are some of you this morning that you're in deep with sin and rebellion of various kinds. And you know that it's raging in you. And I'm here to say to you this morning, 
that God loves you and he wants better for you. And he's going to get you one way or another. <laughs> Yield sooner rather than later. All right? And he'll make something beautiful out of your life. But I think I'm also talking this morning to some of you who you feel like there are good things that you've held dear that are somehow slipping away from you or places that the Lord is leading you that feel really fraught and uncertain. And I'm telling you that God has more for you than you even want for yourself. Think about what Paul says. Paul says to him, this is his prayer in Ephesians 3, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could or even imagine. To him be glory. That is the most beautiful thing that can ever happen to us. When we go, I yield now my life into the hands of one who dreams better dreams for me than I could ever dream for myself. So Lord, have your way. That's our cry this morning. Would you stand? And would you say it now in your own way, in your own words, Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. We submit to you. We yield to you, Lord Jesus. You are the one who, <laughs> when we decide to make our bed in hell, you chase us down. You find us even there. So we pray that you would chase the rebel out of us this morning. All in us, that everything in us that wants to be like the nations around us, it's trying to, that wants to give up our baptismal identity, that wants to become like the sons and daughters of the world, and we'd rather have nothing to do with you. I pray that you'd conquer that rebellion in us, that you'd defeat that rebellion in us with your limitless kindness and grace, that you'd remind us that whom have we in heaven but you, and earth has nothing we desire. You're our greatest good, oh God, would you show that to us? Break through this morning. But I'm also praying, oh God, over all of us this morning that we've got places of obedience that we need to go that we have not yet given over to you. And it's not a matter of choosing between evil and good, but it's a matter of choosing between the good we have and the good that you're leading us into. And it's scary and it's fraught and it's uncertain. And I'm praying, Lord Jesus, that you'd give us the strength to say yes to you. So come. We say, have your way. Church, would you begin to say it again? Just have your way. You're doing, you're welcoming the Lord into your life. You're saying, My life is yours, my heart is yours, my energy is yours, my strength is yours, my affection is yours. And so, Lord, have your way. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, help us yield to the love of our good Father for us. In Jesus' name, we're praying. And all God's people said, Let's respond with worship, and then Pastor Rory is going to lead us to the table. us so. 
love song up to him. for that Lord if we are his portion and he's our prize drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes if grace
New Life East, we're going to take communion in just a moment. So if you want to grab those elements, you can. Uh, at, at the 9 o'clock service today, I had this real clear impression upon me that there was a word that people needed to hear. And I thought it was just for 9 o'clock, but I think it's for many of us in this room too. Um, if you grow up around church or even grew up around like Christian culture, the idea that God loves you can be a bit of a, you can just feel a little flippant when you hear it so often, right? God loves you and, and that's sweet. And it can sort of feel almost too big for us to really grab a hold of. But I think what some of us in the room need to hear today is it's not just that God loves you. That is deeply true. But it's in fact that God actually likes you. He likes you. For some of you, that's the first time you've ever heard that idea that God actually likes you. You look at your life and the anxiety and depression and the mental health that you struggle with and you wonder how could God even like me? I understand he could love me, but how could he, he actually like me? You think about the relationships you have where things have been fractured and disjointed and maybe for many of you, when you think about it, you feel shame because it feels like it's your fault. And you believe that God loves you, but there's no way that God could like you. Maybe you even had the experience of growing up in a home with a parent who had looked at you at one point and said, son, daughter, I love you, but right now I just don't like you. That is not who our God is. Our God does just, doesn't just love you in this massive blanketed sort of way, but he looks at you as a son and as a daughter and he deeply deeply likes you. He's proud of you. Nothing becomes clearer than the picture of the night that Jesus sat around a table with his closest friends and he took bread and he broke it. New Life East, would you take that bread and would you break it? He took this bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, which will be crucified for you. Every time you eat, would you do so in remembrance of me? New life, would you take and would you eat? That same night he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant my blood, the new promise to you, the commitment to you, the visual sign that I will not leave you nor forsake you, but that I will lay my life down so that you know just how much I love you, just how much I will continue to pursue you even when you push and pull away. So New Life East, would you take and would you drink and be reminded of God's love for you? Now, would you join us in singing the doxology? God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above you. 
Would you just take a moment and rest now in God's presence? Drink deep. Savor his love, his goodness. The Lord's delight is in his people. His delight is in his people. He's happy to be with us. Happy to call us his own. And so we rest in that. We, we know and we have come to rely, oh God, on the love that you have for us. As you go, brothers and sisters, I say to you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Why don't you open your hands like this, receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to be introduced or reintroduced to a relationship with Jesus, we'd love to pray about that with you as well. New Life East, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And go outside today. It's gorgeous. Enjoy the day. We'll see you next Sunday.